Hey, good evening. How are we? Hey, for those of you who are in here when I yelled out, I need an AV person, I'm clearly the sub uh, for tonight. And so uh, thanks to uh, Chris, who's back there, who's getting things going. Um, But hey, uh, Nathan is, I believe, in Haiti right now. And so you can be praying for him and the team that's down there. Uh, My name is Derek Matthews. Uh, Just a little bit about me and just my world. Um, I uh, grew up in a little place called Houston, went to a little school uh, down in College Station called the Texas A&M. Yep, all blue. Whoops. Yeah, that was, oh, good. I've never heard that one. Uh, well played. Well played. So I've immediately just alienated half of you and endeared myself to half of you. So that's how you started off. So anyway, so um, I uh, came uh, to Christ um, about seventh grade. I grew up in the Roman Catholicism background, uh, heard the gospel presented uh, clearly about seventh grade, came to Christ then, um, didn't know what that really meant until about freshman year of college when I was at a school and um, went down there. I got connected to some ministries down there, graduated, uh, met my wife, got engaged, uh, bought a house, got married, got ordained, started seminary all in like like three days. Like it was, it was a lot. In a, it, was, it was really like 10 months, but it was just whirled upside down really quickly. And, um, and started working for a church, started as their middle school um, uh, boys pastor, and just over the course of six years, had six different positions there, uh, and culminated as their associate pastor uh, that was over teaching students and communications. Um, so a lot. And um, hi, I'm Derek. I can't say no to things. Um, so I kept saying yes to things, uh, honestly, because I kind of thought that I could steer the ship in, in the direction that I kind of wanted it. Um, and it wasn't before long, but before I just burnt out. In fact, about this time, about a year and a half ago, I remember praying to God going, God, um, if this is ministry, uh, I, I don't want it. Um, which is weird to me because I never in my life thought I would have that conversation with God. Uh, But the truth was, is I was at a church that was just objectively unhealthy. Um, The gospel was presented from stage, um, but Jesus was never talked about elsewhere. Um, And there was a lot of things I could tell you about, about that church, but, but through a series of conversations, I ended up uh, coming here to Watermark and jumping into the residency program that Blake Holmes leads. And, um, for those of you that were uh, at the CLC, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, um, h- how many were there? Just show of hands. There or a part of it or anything like that? Awesome, 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 awesome. Your wife was there and told you all about it. Well, you are one with her, and though therefore you were there too. So, <laughs> so here's the thing. I, I mentioned the CLC because I just, I just feel like I've gotten a CLC every week uh, being here. Uh, I am deeply encouraged Um, by not just what goes up on stage at Watermark, uh, but I am deeply encouraged by what happens behind the scenes, Uh, what happens in our staff meetings, in our staff prayers, how decisions are made, how intensely the Lord is sought. I cried in our first staff meeting because Jesus was celebrated. Um, And I just, even working at a church for years, just didn't see that. Um, and, And so I'm deeply encouraged to be here uh, for many reasons, and one of the reasons is, is you guys. Um, I'm deeply encouraged by individuals that would say, hey, I want to give up some time every Thursday night for six or seven weeks, however long this class is, to come and hear more about Jesus, 
to celebrate who he is and, and what he's about. And so I am deeply encouraged um, by, by you guys. And, and I'll tell you this, uh, where about a year and a half ago, I said, God, if this is ministry, I, I don't know if I want it. Um, the Lord has just done a wonderful work in my life and my wife's life over this last year in which I go, Lord, I don't want anything less. Um, I want to live my life um, uh, sharing your good news and your hope. And just like the church leaders conference said, hey, the hope of the world is in the church because the church is the means. It's the plan A of God. There is no plan B. It's the plan A of God. I want to be riding right next to Jesus uh, throughout the rest of my life. And I hope that that's true of you as well. Um, and so y'all have been going through uh, the life of Jesus, uh, the life of Christ. And so uh, what we're going to do is just real quick, just kind of do a quick overview of kind of what we've covered uh, over the last couple of weeks. And then I'm going to throw a question out to you. You'll talk amongst your tables, uh, and then we'll come back, and then we'll go back and forth. And so let's start uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Uh, Father, I do thank you. Um, I thank you for you. Um, I thank you for your son. I thank you for everything you are. Um, and Father, I just thank you that, um, Father, the king has come. And he's coming again. And so, Father, thank you that he's come objectively into human history. Um, and then he's come into all of our lives. Um, not when we have made ourselves look a certain way. But, Father, while we were yet sinners, Christ came for us. Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for Christ. And thank you for those here right now. So, Lord, speak through me. Um, I pray that we would leave celebrating Jesus more and more and more and more until we get to see him face to face. I look forward to that day, God. And just like the end of Revelation says, Lord, bring that day quickly. Bring that day quickly. So, Lord, we love you. And we ask these things through your spirit and in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, week one, uh, y'all talked about just the context of the life of Christ. And so if you were to read Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. When the fullness of time came. And so I was a classical history major uh, in, in college. Dated a lot. Um, joking. Uh, <laughs> classical history major in college and uh, spent a lot of time studying Greek, but classical history is everything 500 BC to 580. And so if you just were to look at that time objectively, there were certain things that were happening in the course of human history that have never happened before. And so Alexander the Great Hellenizes the world, brings Greek culture to the entire world, common language, common coinage, common road systems, and into this moment that has all this connection. There's all uh, this connection across the cultures, but there's so much division within the culture. And so when Jesus came, he was literally coming to a world that was wrought with warfare, uh, wrought with disagreements amongst the religious classes, uh, uh, just a chaotic environment. And yet into that moment, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son into human history. And, and so for me, sometimes I read the Bible and I just kind of think of it like Narnia. You know, this other world, other time, other, you know, just over there. No. Jesus came to a real place at a real time, spoke a real language. 
So first week, we just discussed the cultural surroundings of the New Testament time period. And the second week, we discussed the claim of Jesus, namely that he claimed something really crazy, that he was the son of God. Um, That's crazy. That's crazy to claim. And what we talked about with that week was the same idea that not only was it crazy that he claimed that he was the son of God, but it was almost even crazier that a group of Hebraic Jews looked at this guy and said, okay, yeah, all right, good. Like, like Hebraic Jews, though, so people who grew up understanding over and over and over, reciting every single day, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that the Lord is one, one, one guy. The Lord is one, singular. And you have these guys who are looking at this guy named Jesus who says, yeah, I'm God, and he's praying to God, and there's this other God that's coming. So, yes, there is one God, and we're going to call him Father, Son, and Spirit. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's crazy. They're seeing this guy, the the group of people that would have the least likelihood to, to claim Jesus as God, where it would be blasphemy within their own religious structure, are going around claiming that he was, in fact, the very son of God. And the only explanation that we see with that is that they, in fact, encountered a risen king, a risen Lord. There was something that happened that fundamentally changed every single thing about their entire worldview. And so last week, y'all talked about, I believe, the liar, lunatic lore, the C.S. Lewis. Did y'all talk about that last week? Did that come up? Well, it's going to come up now. Um, So C.S. Lewis has this phrase of, of, look, Jesus said certain things that were crazy. And, And some people go, look, he was just a good moral teacher. So, so you're left with some kind of weird dynamic. You, he said you can't say that he's just a good moral teacher. Because a good moral teacher wouldn't claim that I'm God. All right? So as me being a student pastor for a couple of years, I used to always look at the students and say, hey, if, if your math teacher the other day just said, hey, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and I'm God. <laughs> Is that a good teacher? <laughs> no! You would go... Mom, dad, my math teacher, great at math, thinks she's God. Um, I don't know if I should be concerned, but so, so I'd always bring that up and be like, okay, a good moral teacher wouldn't claim the claims that Jesus claimed unless they were in fact true. And so there's this nonsense going around in which people of our culture saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus' teachings, but they ignore his central teaching. I want to follow the Sermon on the Mount, though they can't. But I'm going to ignore the fact that he made this claim that he was objectively the son of the living God. And so C.S. Lewis says, look, for someone to say that, they, it, they're either one of three things. They're either a liar, meaning that they know what they're saying is wrong, but they don't care. They're just trying to accumulate a following. They're a lunatic. They're crazy. He says they're crazy on a level of a poached egg, someone who believes that they're a poached egg. So they're either a liar, a lunatic, or he's exactly who he claims to be. He's the Lord. And so what made a group of Hebraic Jews look at this guy who they could physically touch and interact with and talk with, say, yeah, I think you're the sovereign deity over all things. Well, it wasn't just his message, but it was the miracles that validated the messages was what you talked about last week. 
the works of Christ, the miracles that he did. And so when Jesus would go around and claim, hey, I'm the bread of life, he wouldn't just make that claim. That would be crazy. If you just walked up and go, hey, I'm the bread of life. Come to me. That's weird, all right? But then if he goes and feeds 5,000 people with a kid's Lunchable, right afterwards, you go, whoa, 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 bread of life, Lunchable into 5,000 people getting fed. Okay, I'm starting to see some correlation here. All right. If you say, hey, I'm the light of the world, anyone who comes to me will never walk in darkness, but will walk in light. I'm the light of the world. I bring illumination to all things. That's crazy unless right afterwards you make a blind man see. If you say, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life at a funeral, you're crazy. Unless you're able to raise the man who just died and say, Lazarus, come up, come out. But he stinks. It's okay. Lazarus, come out, take a bath, come back. You're good. What he said, his miracles validated his message. And so that's what we've been talking about these last couple of weeks. And so that was just a quick kind of catch up. And so tonight is kind of the culmination of those weeks. It's, it's Jesus came into this historical context and he made these audacious claims, but then he did these crazy things that validated said claims. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, then that fundamentally changes everything. Like it just fundamentally changes everything of how we perceive life, how we perceive death, how we perceive how we're supposed to live in this world, how we're supposed to interact with one another. If God shows up, it changes everything. And more importantly, not only does it change everything, if God shows up and starts telling us stuff, we should listen. All right? And so again, I, as I was a youth pastor, I would go and I would talk to these kids and I was trying to show them the, the, the importance of studying the Bible and, and reading the Bible. And so I'd always point out a kid and be like, hey, what's your favorite video game? And he would say something about Call of Duty or Halo or just something where a lot of people died um, in the process. And he was the hero. Um, and so I'd call him out and he, he would say, hey, it's Call of Duty, Black, Down, Ops, Seven, you know, whatever it's called. And I would say, hey, so what if you went and you, you got that video game and you're standing in line to, to check out and buy it and um, you look in the back and there's a little picture of the guy who was like the key developer. Uh, he was the mastermind. He was the architect of all this. And, and what would happen if you turned and you saw that picture and then you saw the guy like right next to you? Like, what would you do? You'd probably talk to him and be like, oh my gosh, I'm about to buy your game. That's you, that's you, that's you. Like, like that's crazy. But what if that guy looked at you and said, hey, um, I'm here, I'm selling this book that's just an objective walkthrough through the entire game. And if you were just to follow the way that I've designed this game to function, uh, you'll thrive within the game. And so you're left with one or two options in that moment. You could either listen to the developer of the game and go right when he tells you to go right, or you can not listen to the developer of the game and go left when he tells you to go right and get exploded. So which one are you going to do, bro? And the kid was like, I think I'd go right. I'm like, yeah, duh. That's what we have with the scriptures, that, that God is the developer of all things, that he is the designer, the architect. He knows how this world functions. Why? Because he made it. And so you listen to what he has to say. And more importantly, if God shows up right next to you, talking, interacting, you listen to what he says. 
And so tonight isn't just the claims Jesus made about himself or the miracles that validated said claims, but rather it's the central message that Jesus came to deliver. The central heart of Christ's message. That's tonight. And so for the next 10 minutes, I just want you talking around your tables about this question. That if you were to go to Walmart and just pull a bunch of people asking that question, hey, what do you believe is the central message of Christianity? What do you think it was the central message that Jesus came and delivered? What do you think that would be? So I want you to answer kind of a two-part question. One is, what are the questions that people in the marketplace of our world, how would they answer that question? And then how would you answer that question of what is the central message of Christianity? So I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to talk amongst, your t- amongst yourselves. All right. So who feels confident with the ability that y'all discuss around your table to share kind of with the group of, of as you think about how people answer that question within the marketplace, within our culture, uh, what are some of the things that they're answering? What is the central message either of Christianity or Christ himself? Yeah, absolutely. So, so God is essentially a God of karma in which uh, Jesus has come to tell you that you're bad, he's good, be better, and good luck when you die, right? Um, absolutely. That, that, so if, in case you didn't hear, she said uh, that, that a lot of people in our culture just have that mindset that Jesus basically came to say, do better. <laughs> uh, gosh, what an awful message. Uh, so... Um, so who else? Who else? Anything else that y'all discuss at your tables? We came up kind of with the description of the Whole Foods Jesus, but uh, also the Walmart, being that we're in the Bible God, I think a lot of people would know that the story that Christ came and died for our sins by accepting him as you do have eternal life. Yeah. So they might know that, right, but, just not but not believe it. Yeah, that's good. Right. So they might know the central message, but not believe it for themselves. The demons believe that God is one. Good for them. Um, yeah. So, piggyback on hers to, like, um, when people say, like, only God can judge me and things like that, that kind of just kind of runs along with that, where, like, he's going to let you live your entire life, and then it's like, you're going to come to the gate, like, eh, yeah, you're pretty good, and then like, you're let in. But in reality, it's supposed to be a relationship with him, unlike anyone else. Yeah. It's not to tell you what not to do. It's to try to pull you in to say, hey, I love you and I want this for Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, just, just, just whittling it all down again just to this idea of either do better or performance-based acceptance or, or just kind of live your life because God just wants you to be happy, right? Um, 
And so when I hear people saying that phrase, hey, only God can judge me, like I cringe inside because I go, and he will. Like, don't miss that part. And how do I say that without, like, how do I say that in grace? Um, yeah, good luck with that one. Um, that's why we need Christ. All right, you had something? Yeah. And that, that religion just functions as one of those little guideposts along the way. And they're all kind of uh, equal in, in helping us be more civilized, less barbaric, yeah. m- more uh, spiritual, if you have it. In other words, not so concerned with our earthly surroundings. And it's just, it's. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like Paul said, we worship the created rather than the creator. Yeah, absolutely. Romans 1, just this idea of, of we are moving, and, and if we just as a society can come together and pursue this, this ethereal utopia that we've all come up with, um, then, then things would be better. I, I, don't, I, I didn't watch it, but I, I'm, I'm sure I understood the premise. It was some reality show that came out uh, a couple weeks back or hasn't come out yet. I don't know. I watch Netflix. Um, and so uh, don't always see what happens on actual TV. Um, so, but it was, it was the idea of a utopia, that we can create a utopia. We're going to have people can just kind of come together. And whoever made that show just must be laughing, like wake up laughing, because they know what they're doing. Like they're putting a bunch of people into like a community. And the idea of the show was they had like a year or two years to create a society from scratch. And all they did was fight, you know? And so it's like, you, can, you can't create a perfect society because you're in it. You know, and so so all these ideas about just what is the central message of Christianity. And and so I heard some of the tables saying, uh, just hearing former messages from either JP or Todd about as you're talking to individuals, that's the key, bringing it back to the core message of Christianity. So even when people doubt that this is the word of God, you ask them, hey, do you even know what the central message of this book is? So you always bring it back. To that, And so tonight we're going to look at just what does Jesus say about what his mission and message was. And so if you notice, uh, the slides are all black tonight. It's black on black font. Um, so actually, no, I we couldn't figure out how to put it up, but we're just going to walk through the slides that you have in front of you. Um, and if you didn't get it uh, before you leave, uh, there's a um, just great uh, article that, that Nathan put together about some of the stuff we're talking about. And so we'll talk a little bit more uh, and then we're going to uh, break in to have another little conversation. Then we'll close up. And so um, Jesus will say very clearly what his message and his mission is. Um, it, it's kind of hard to miss as you read through the Gospels um, because he says it just Very plainly, uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Okay, pretty straightforward there. Uh, Mark 10.45 said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, In John 18, this is the moment that Jesus is in front of Pilate, and they're having that conversation. And and, and Pilate looks at him and says, okay, so you say you're this king. And Jesus has already said, look, if if my kingdom was of this world, like my my armies, my angel armies would have already have taken you guys out. Um, Or my armies would have taken you guys out, but my kingdom isn't of this world. 
And so for, and so therefore I have a different purpose right now. And so Pilate says to him, so you're a king, which would have been high treason against Caesar. And Jesus answers, he says, Hey, you say I'm a king for this purpose. I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And I love it, and it's not on there, but the next thing that Pilate says is, what is truth? (laughs) He's looking at truth. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is saying, I've come to bear witness to what is objectively real. That is what, that's what truth is. It's what's objectively real. It's, it's the real, real And Jesus is saying, I've come to bear witness to the truth because I am the truth. And then Pilate says, well, what is it? What is truth? And and he misses in that moment. Pilate misses the fact that he's looking at truth in the face, that that truth has been revealed and and it's been revealed fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And so all of these ideas, if you notice, he doesn't say the same thing every time, that the Son of Man came to do this, the Son of Man came to do this, the Son of Man came to do this. He's got various missions that he's on, Um, but all of them fall under this one umbrella um, that Jesus preached often. Um, In fact, it was one of his first messages, and it's found in Matthew 4, 17, uh, when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so what do I mean when I mean that there's this umbrella, that, that's his umbrella message, and there's all these other little messages underneath it. Uh, well, what I mean by that is this, that, that Jesus' primary message is that the kingdom has come near, and he's the king. Uh, he has returned. And, and so the king is amongst you. And so the reason why he keeps on saying things like the Son of Man came to do this and the Son of Man came to do, do, to do this and this and this is he's sharing and showing what the king is designed to do and what his subjects are designed to do and what his kingdom will be marked by. And so when he says the Son of Man has come to bear witness about the truth, he's saying that the kingdom is marked by those who live according to the truth, according to what is really real. That is what marks citizens of the kingdom. When he says that um, he came to uh, seek and save the lost, what he's saying is that the kingdom is marked by individuals whose entry point is the king himself. There's no other way. And so when Jesus says that um, he came to not serve but to be served, he's saying the kingdom is marked by a selfless service. And so when Jesus says in in Matthew uh, Matthew 4, 17, that the, the kingdom has come near, He's kind of saying two things. Uh, one, he, he's talking about this idea of a kingdom in which we are his subjects. But he's also saying that the kingdom is fully embodied within himself because he is the king. And so we live in a uh, presidential uh, democracy, for better or worse. Uh, we live in that uh, right now. But we live in a presidential democracy, and so we don't have that concept of kings. And so we've tried, historically, kingdoms, and they often fail because men fail. But Jesus is saying that there is a kingdom in which I am unanimously, sovereignly, 100% in control. And how I'm living my life on this earth It is what is representative of what subjects of the kingdom should look like, because subjects of the kingdom should look like the king. 
And so in one sense, Jesus is saying, I'm the embodiment of the kingdom. Uh, but in another sense, um, he, he's explaining about this, this realm called the kingdom. And so the question then is, what is the kingdom? And so you read throughout your Bible, Jesus talks a lot about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Those are synonymous terms. And so if you look at that slide that just talks about the range of God's effective will, just the kingdom of heaven, uh, that that is what the kingdom of heaven is. That the kingdom of heaven is the range of the king's will. And so in Lion King, you know, everything the light touches is ours. That's our domain. What about that shadowy, shadowy place over there? That's not ours, son. You know, he says, everything that my will is over is what the light touches. And so what God is saying is everything that is mine is where my will is inactive. So, so can you think of anything in which God's sovereign will isn't over? No. And so in one sense, the kingdom of heaven is any place in which God's effective will is being enacted, that everything is under God's reign. And so what God wants to be done gets done. And so we have to wrestle with that concept, and we don't have time to do it right now, but we, we, you have a, a will that God has as the king, and every place that God's will is enacted is his kingdom. But you have to wrestle with the fact that there's a lot of stuff that happens that God says not to do. And so we don't have time to fully unpack it tonight, so email Nathan. Um, but God, in his sovereign will, has so decreed that he would have a moral will, things that he desires for us to do. But then in some way, somehow, he, he has um, given us objective moral responsibility. He has given us um, genuine choices. And so if you give your subjects genuine choices, what happens when they don't do the very things that you as the king have called them to do? That's called rebellion. But what happens even more when the subjects don't only not do what the king has called you to do, but actually join the enemy in a full-on scale rebellion against the king? What do we call that? Treason. Treason. So even in our modern day countries, treason carries with it in many countries across the world, what? The death penalty. That you were a part of our society and you abandoned it to join our very enemy to fight against us? We don't treat you like a citizen anymore. We treat you like an enemy. And the thing that should constantly bring you back to the cross and the insanity that God did was that he made his enemies his friends. That while we were yet his enemies, Ephesians 2, he made us his friends. That while we were broken, while we were rebelling against him, the very men that spat in the face of Jesus, Jesus was holding their being together. And even from the cross, what does he say? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That God in his kingdom would see a rebellious group of traitors. And we are all in that category. And he would say, I'm going to send my son to die on their behalf, to take the punishment of a traitor. 
so that they would be forgiven and ushered back into the kingdom. And so God's kingdom is everywhere that God's effective will is taking place. And so it kind of breaks into these two parts, the immaterial and the material. Uh, Simply put, the immaterial um, is not flesh and bone. It's not religious festivals. It's God's rule over the human heart. And so if you were to read, and I'll read it to you from uh, Psalms 51. Um, Psalms 51, uh, David, the man after God's own heart, um, rebels against God. Um, and, and most people see that moment of David rebelling against God against, uh, with, with him and Bathsheba. Um, David's in a place he shouldn't be in, sees a girl and says, hey, you know, and um, we know the story. If you read the chapter beforehand, David constantly is saying the same phrase over and over. And he's saying um, the word sent. He sent this. He did this. He, he, David has gotten to this position, if you read it carefully, where he believes that though he's supposed to be the under king to God, that he is now in control. And so the, the real sin of David is the real sin of all of us is that we believe that we're our own gods. We're our own kings. We're trying to set up our own kingdom. And so it manifested itself in a uh, affair and murder. But in the heart of his heart, David understood that, that his rebellion was believing that he was uh, right, that he was the king. And I can kind of do my own thing. And so in Psalms 51, um, uh, verse 17... It says this, I'll start at 16. It says, uh, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Okay, stop. That's weird because the king was told to memorize or, and write out the entire uh, uh, first five books of the Bible and keep it with them. And there's a lot of stuff in there about burnt offerings, about sacrifices, things like that. But David here is seeing something that is crucial to our understanding of the Mosaic law. And that's this. He says, you don't desire these. It's never been about external actions to God. But rather, verse 17, the sacrifices of a God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so God is chiefly after, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, But God is chiefly after not what you do, though that is important to him, but rather why you do it, Uh, the heart behind it, that if you're going to sacrifice anything before the Lord, it's not going to be a lamb. It's going to be your heart. That's what David's understanding under the Mosaic law is. And so you see it throughout scripture. And in fact, the last book of your Old Testament, these individuals are coming up and saying, hey, um, We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to do everything that the Lord's telling us to do, um, but our hearts are far away from him. And God, after that, gets really ticked (laughs) and goes 400 years without talking to his people. Um, Because why? It's because they've made this relationship that we talked about uh, into a list of religious imperatives, things that we're just supposed to do to check off a list. And so God's effective range uh, goes throughout the Uh, the immaterial world, namely the human heart, that he desires to reign over your heart. And and so what does repentance look like within that context? It's it's taking your desires, your heart, the, the, the kingdom you're trying to build yourself, and declaring before the Lord that, God, this kingdom is not mine. And so to, 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 to be in the kingdom of God, you have to abandon, you have to repent from your kingdom that you're trying to build. 
And so God desires a, a, a rule over the immaterial, namely the human heart. Um, to put it this way, um, if, I, if, I, um, if I got in a fight with my wife, Michaela, um, and I left and I came back, and I had flowers, and I gave her flowers, and she just goes, oh, you know, thank you, you know, why'd you get me flowers? And I just go, well, I just, I'm just obligated to um, in this moment. I know that when I say this, I need to reciprocate with this, and so we good? <laughs> Ladies, <laughs> does that just warm your heart? No. But if I say, hey, babe, I've messed up and I love you and I want to have our relationship continuously kindled together. And these flowers are just flowers. They're a representation of what's going on in my heart that I'm sorry and I love you. Mm. Right. Yeah. 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 You can write that down, guys. Um, he wants the rain over your heart. Over your heart. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a moment. Uh, but there's also a material aspect of the kingdom. Uh, I love what uh, Nathan kind of speaks a lot of, which is this ethereal sky palace. Uh, that if you think about our culture and when they think of heaven, what do they think of? They think of like um, clouds and we're all kind of not walking, but kind of floating. And some, for some reason, we don't have any legs, but they're just kind of like a like Casper, the friendliest ghost, like kind of moving along and and uh, it's just this kind of ethereal sky palace that even though it's all spiritual, there's golden gates, um, which are material. Uh, and even though it's all spiritual, there's streets of gold. Um, but that we have this weird skewed of what actually heaven is. And that heaven is, in fact, a, a material uh, place. If you read Revelation, at the end of all things, we don't go up. Heaven comes down. Um, heaven restores and redeems the created order, the created world. Read Romans 8. Creation will be saved. Creation will experience salvation. Um, and so we don't just leave here and I'm like, done with this place, new earth. You know, like God is redeeming just like he's redeeming us. He's redeeming the created order uh, when Jesus returns. And so you see it depicted a little bit um, in the movie Narnia. Um, at the very, not the movie Narnia, uh, those were, yeah. uh, the book Narnia is fantastic. Um, but at the end, the last battle um, of the book called The Last Battle, um, you see Aslan returning and he brings uh, uh, all those who have believed in him, have placed their life under his care into new Narnia. And as they're looking around, they're walking, they're looking, they're, they're, they're blown away because they go, it feels like Narnia, but everything's brighter, everything's more exuberant. And then they see this waterfall and they jump into this uh, a pool and they go, let's just climb up that waterfall. And they start climbing up the waterfall and they go, is anyone afraid right now? And they go, no. They go, try to be afraid. They go, I'm trying to be afraid and I'm not afraid. It's amazing. And they just go up further up, further in chasing Aslan. And the last line of Narnia, spoil alert, it's been out for 60 years. So um, <laughs> spoil alert. The last line is that all, everything that you've read so far was just the cover page to the greatest adventure ever. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So I want that. And at the very end of all things, we are brought into 
new Narnia as Jesus recreates what's been broken. And so there is a material aspect uh, to the creative order. We are material beings. Uh, you see it in Psalms 24, 1, uh, Psalms uh, 96, is that creation is under the objective rule and reign of God. And so just like we talked about, there's kind of these aspects in which God's full rule is already here, uh, but also not yet here. Um, and so already here, um, just to kind of draw a circle around yourself, for those who, who have trusted in the Lord, you can see it within your own heart. Um, that there's aspects of me that if I look back on my life, that there's a more and more reign of God in my life that has brought me more and more joy and love and peace and goodness and satisfaction in him. And yet, if you look at the same heart, you see a brokenness, a depravity, an anger, a stressed out Derek. And so I'm already a part of this kingdom, and yet I'm not yet fully there. And you can multiply that across our culture. Look at the beauty that we as a culture are making. We are that, that, that God in his sovereignty has, has started this kingdom, what he calls the first fruits of the spirit within us as believers, the first fruits of the harvest within us as believers, that we are experiencing this level of joy and satisfaction in Christ. But the first fruits are not the harvest. The harvest is to come. And that's what Jesus says in, in Revelations 21, and I'll read that to you. Um, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, which is the essence of the kingdom that where God dwells. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is our future. And God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be the, there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on, seated on his throne, the king, he said, behold, I am making all things new. And I also write down these things because these words are faithful and true. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. That's your future. That's your future. That's new Narnia. Everything else is just a cover story. And so God is moving throughout this world, redeeming the world. And yet there will come a moment in which the king will return and he will make all things fully new. And so to fully understand just how it all plays out, we need to understand a word, which is the word metanarrative. Uh, metanarrative is a word many of you have probably heard. Some of you probably haven't. Uh, but it's the word that just kind of is, the word just means the whole story. The whole story. And so um, any, any Harry Potter fans in here? It's okay, you can admit it. Right, right here. All right, Lord of the Rings fans. All right. We'll hang out later. Um, so any, any epic story, what do you see? You see this one overarching storyline. And yet for Harry Potter's, for uh, Lord of the Rings, for really any story at length, you see these individual stories. And so you can read the third Harry Potter and read one book with the beginning, middle, and the end, and you see a story. 
Um, but you would miss what the significance of that story if you don't see the meta narrative, the, the full story, the whole story. And, and so the same is true when you read your Bible. And so if you open up Leviticus and you just go, one little story, I got this. <laughs> okay, Lord, give me strength. You know, like if you miss the meta narrative, then you miss the understanding of why Leviticus is important. And so the, the, the meta-narrative is just the whole story. And so every single culture in this world, or every single world religion, or every single philosophy or thought divides their, uh, their understanding of this world into four categories, whether they would call it this or not, they do. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So even the staunchest atheists would have an answer to these four questions. Creation, why are we, or, or who are we, why are we here? Uh, the, the fall is, why is the world the way that it is? Um, redemption is what can be done to, to help it, to save it. And restoration is, where are we all going? Um, and so there, everyone's answering those questions. Those are the major life questions. And so in the meta narrative, you see this, this progression of God's kingdom. And, and the central message is not something new with Christ. It's something that's been a part of the entire story. Uh, that when God said, let there be light... Um, his understanding was the entire culmination of what we just read in Revelations 21. Uh, that all this has been moving towards a climactic, not end, but a climactic eternity. And so in creation, we're asking, you know, who are we? Why are, you, why are we here? And uh, God tells us in Genesis 1.28, he says, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, we exist as God's under kings. Um, his under-shepherds, his, his uh, under-rulers. Uh, we were made in his image, Genesis 1.27. Uh, there's, there's this old uh, concept of, of what this idea of image of God meant, meant and it basically meant this. Hey, if, if you were a king and you ruled over this large landmass, you as a king couldn't be in every village at every time. But when you would take over a village, what you would do is you would create an icon of yourself an image, a statue to put into place. And that would, that would show that village, that town, that you were the king over it. And so I love what C.S. Lewis does. He says, hey, imagine if God did that, and then he breathed life into that statue. He said, that's what he did with us. If you read Genesis 1, we were called to have dominion over this world. We, we, had, we had dominion over this kingdom. God in his crazy sovereignty, though he's king fully on the throne, goes, hey, I want you to rule. I want you to reign this kingdom that I've created called the earth. And you're supposed to expand this thing called the garden throughout the course of the earth, cultivate the ground, be fruitful, multiply, populate this place with other image bearers of me. And yet we rebelled. Um, we wanted our way and not God's way. Uh, we saw the king and said, um, you've told us how we're supposed to function in this kingdom, and we don't like that. And so in the fall, you have two attacks on the person of God. One is to doubt the, exist or doubt the goodness of God. Hey, did God really say this? And then one is to establish your own kingdom separated from God. Uh, you can be your own God. Hey, God has established this kingdom, but you know what? I want you to establish your own kingdom, said the serpent. 
And so it's interesting, you see the story of humanity progressing, and you can trace really everything back to this idea that mankind keeps on wanting to create their own kingdom. And so you see that very early on in the, in the, in the narrative of our, of our Bible with the story of Babel. And so in the story of Babel, if you were to read through it, you, you get this sense that these individuals, it says that they're trying to create this tower that reaches to the heaven and they're, they're trying, they don't want to be dispersed across the land. And you get this sense that if you read through it, that they are trying to develop for themselves away from God, a kingdom and a power and a glory all for themselves. And if you read that narrative carefully, they're doing it because they're, par- they're terrified that they're going to die. So I'll have my own kingdom, my own power, my own glory to myself because I am afraid um, that my life's not going to matter. And then Jesus comes. And he says, the kingdom, the power, the glory, they're not yours. They're mine. I'm the king. The king has returned. And so I love uh, Isaiah 59, 60, and 61, when, when God, is ta- or God is looking across the earth and he's saying, there's nobody that does good. There's nobody that does righteousness. And, and he's talking about just, he's scanning the earth. And he's like, there's nobody bringing justice. I've created this kingdom and everyone has rebelled. And then he says, therefore, my own arm will bring salvation. And he just talks about this individual who's going to come and he's going to make everything right. And then in Isaiah uh, 60, he says uh, this phrase of the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. He'll be anointed to preach good news to the poor. And he goes on and on. And if you were to read Luke chapter four, it's the same sermon that Jesus gives in his first sermon. And then in Isaiah 61, he says, "Okay, so arise, shine, because the light has come. The king has returned. And so Jesus, where we are desperately trying to create our own kingdom, Jesus is saying, the kingdom's not yours. You have not been created to be your own king. The kingdom, the power, the glory, he says, are mine. That's what he's doing in redemption and the restoration. We just read it in Revelations 21 that the great culmination of all things is that Jesus is on his throne for all of eternity. And we are celebrating and worshiping and being co-leaders with him. He's making all things new. That's the great story. That's the great meta narrative. And so in this story, a peasant from Nazareth stands up, starts doing crazy things, starts saying crazy things, amasses a massive following because he's doing crazy things and saying crazy things. And they didn't have Netflix. And so they jumped in and went town to town to see this man that functionally acted like no other man ever did, and yet functionally acted in such a way that they all aspired to. And he sits down with them, and Matthew, he sits down on on a mountainside, and he gives his longest recorded sermon. And as you read through it, you see kingdom mindset over and over and over again. And so on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to rebuttal any idea of a contradictory kingdom. And that's why he says it's uh, six times. Hey, you've heard it said this. I say to you this. You've heard it say this. 
I'm the king, I say this. One of the biggest things that people saw when they saw Jesus is they said, he teaches as one with authority. How can you teach as someone with one with authority? It's if you have all authority, if you're the king. And so he says six times, hey, you've heard it say this, I say to you this. And so if you look through what he's rebuttaling, it's this idea of a contradictory kingdom, that they got the Old Testament wrong. So, so you see that idea of a, a law versus an oral law, uh, that Jesus didn't come to go, hey, those Ten Commandments, God got them wrong, sorry. You know, like, what happened was they would take the Old Testament law and then they would put a burden on themselves and on others that the law was never meant to do. The Psalm says the law is good. Paul says the law is good. We're not under the Mosaic law anymore, but Jesus has come and he has said, look, the law, you, so, so you, it says you, you, um, to, to keep the Sabbath holy. And yet you Pharisees have told people that what that means is for you to walk. You can only walk X amount of steps away from your home on a Sabbath. And if you like move in the wrong way, God hates you. <laughs> Golly, come on. And so what they would do is they would say, okay, if you're, you're only allowed to go like a mile away from your home. And so what they would do is they would take a rock from their home the day before and they would walk over about a mile and drop it. And they would go, that's my house too. And they would walk back and the next day because they needed to go to their friend's house that was two miles away and they couldn't do it on the Sabbath because some guy that called himself a rabbi said that you can't walk on the Sabbath because God hates you if you walk too much. They would <laughs> find ways around that. So when Jesus comes, he says, hey, you make a mockery of God by your tradition. He actually says in Mark 7, 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast to your tradition of man. And so that's why he keeps on saying, hey, you've heard it say this, but I say this. You've heard it say, don't murder. What I'm telling you is that God's intention, just like it was in Psalms 51 with, with David saying that it's a broken heart you desire. He says, look, God's intention it's not that you wouldn't just physically kill someone, but rather that you would live in such a way where you would love that person unconditionally. So that's what I'm saying. That's what the law meant. Hey, you've heard it say don't lust or, or, or don't, don't uh, commit adultery. What, I, what I'm telling you is that, that it's, there's a heart issue here. I don't want just dominion over your hands. I want dominion over your heart. That's what he's saying. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And so the central issue in the Sermon on the Mount, like we said before, is not the what, but the why. It's not moral submission or moral form, uh, um, formation. God is centrally concerned with your heart. And so for me, who grew up as a, uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, I just remember as a young age, just hearing a lot of just the what you were supposed to do and not the why behind it. And so I remember the first time I went to confession and I sat down with a, with a priest and, and he just was like, hey, confess your sins. And I was like eight. And so I was like, um... I was mean to my sister. Like, that's all I could come up with. I'm sure I did more. But um, I was like, I was mean to my sister. And you know what? He, I remember him telling me. He goes, okay, do five Hail Marys and ten Lord's, Lord's Prayers. 
And that was it. And so even now, years later, I look back, and, and sometimes when life gets hard, I, my heart reverts back to that moralistic legalism that God just wants me to have a certain quiet time at a certain time because it's more holy to do it at this time instead of this time. And then I get annoyed or I get stressed out because I, my alarm didn't go off and I thought it was more holy to do it in the morning and I didn't do it in the morning because I didn't do it in the morning. And, ah! and then all of a sudden I'm like, God hates me. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's that coming from? It's not from the word of God. It's from the tradition of man. That's why he says, don't follow the tradition of man. Follow the commandment of God. There is a kingdom there is a kingdom, and there's a way that we want you to operate within that, and it's about your heart. It's about your heart. So I love what Philip Yancey says. I think some of you are reading his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, and it's the last part of his um, chapter about the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. He says, the worst tragedy would be to turn the Sermon on the Mount into another form of legalism. I am guilty of doing that. It should rather put an end of all legalism. The Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but the safety net of absolute grace. That's the message of the king. That's the message of the king. Not do better, not moral perfectionism. He said you need to, your, 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 your perfection has to surpass that of the Pharisees. That's like me saying, I'm going to have a club for runners. And you go, well, how fast do you have to be to be in the club? And I go, hey, you know Usain Bolt? Faster than him. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to do that? Hey, you want to be in my kingdom? How good are you going to be? Better than the Pharisees. What? That's the point. There's only one, one, one way you can be more righteous than the Pharisees who were, as Jesus called them in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. They got the what right, but they forgot the why. He says, there's only one way, and that is when my righteousness is impressed upon you, and you receive my righteousness, so that when God the Father looks at you and says, why should I let you in my kingdom? He is looking at his adopted son, who he looks and loves just as much as he does me, Jesus Christ. That God the Father looks at me just the same way. This should blow your mind. The same exact way that he has looked at his beloved son for all of eternity past. That's how he looks at you. So what is the heart? Um, we, we have a tendency to thinking that the heart is this human emotion. Um, that's not how it's used in the text. And so just very quickly... Um, you have some quotes there uh, that you can read, but, but basically the, the, the heart, uh, I'll just read them. The, the, will or, the, um, the will or spirit is the heart in the human system, the core of its being. Uh, it says life must be organized by the will if it's to be organized at all. It, can't, uh, it, it can only be pulled together from the inside, uh, and that's the function of the whole will uh, or heart, to organize our life as a whole and indeed to organize it around God. And so what all these quotes are saying, and I'll read this last one and then just kind of summarize what this guy, uh, Dallas Willard, is saying. Um, it says, a great part of our disaster in contemporary life, and I love this quote, lies in the fact that it is organized around feelings. People nearly always act on their feelings and they think it only right. 
The will is then left at the mercy of circumstances that evoke feelings. And so even though I'm a highly logical person, I'm a high feeler at the same time. I cried thinking about a scene from inside out. Okay? This is a safe place. I cried. Like, weeks after I saw it, I was like, the imaginary friend, he gave up his life. Like, Jesus, who gave up his life. For him. So, it's in the middle. It's okay. Um, so, feelings have a way of kind of dictating us, don't they? And we say around here is that feelings are real, but they're not reliable. And so what we often do is we take our feelings and we impress them upon the text. And so we go to the text going, God, I feel distant from you. And then we read the text and going, yeah, I just, I feel distant for you. And so that's what must be true. And that's not what the heart is. The heart, even if you were to read it in the Hebrew or the Greek, the original language of the Bible, the heart is this idea that this everything about your being, everything, everything, it's not emotional capacity, but rather all that you are, all that you are. And so the message of the kingdom is a transformation of the heart. That's our word resulting in a changed life to be the right type of people, expanding the realm of God's effective rule on the earth. That it's about transformation of the heart that leads to an application of life. Let me say that again. It's about a transformation of the heart that leads to an application of life. It's the immaterial that is dealt with first. And then the material follows. And so within this sermon, Jesus is going to teach his followers how to pray. And just think about what he says. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so for these next few minutes, I just want you at your table just talking about what we just discussed, uh, what stood out to you, discussing this central message of Jesus, and then discussing how you see it playing out in your own life of this idea that it's already here, and yet it's not yet here. And so discuss amongst your table, hey, what stuck out to you? What was new for you? What was just an encouragement for you? And then we'll come in in these last uh, 10 minutes or so. And just wrap it up uh, with uh, two parables about the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles or your Bible phones, um, turn with me to Matthew 13 and um, we'll close it out. Matthew 13 verses 44 uh, through 46. Um, In Matthew 13, Jesus is going to give a couple of parables about this idea of the kingdom. Um, which is his central message. Um, and so let me just read these to you because I think there's just, there's just worth, um, so much worth in what he is saying here. Um, Matthew 13, picking up in verse 44, says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so both of these parables have this concept that, that whatever you have, as Paul would say, I count it as rubbish next to knowing the king. I love what the first parable says about just when he found it, it was a treasure. And then it says, with his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has. There is an objective cost to following Jesus. But it's worth it. And so Nathan has used this illustration before about just how essentially Jesus has come and he has offered us Fort Knox, um, all the gold of Fort Knox. And he just says, but in order to do it, you have to give me your dirty penny that you're holding on to. And for some reason, we want to hold on to it. And even when we've freely given it to him, we want it, we want it back. And so that tells us something about the brokenness of us. Either we have overvalued the penny or we undervalue Fort Knox. We either overvalue this idea that we can create our own kingdom, even though his history has shown us that anyone who tries to build their own kingdom um, ends up miserable and dead. So there's something. Uh, but those who link their life up to the meta narrative, the story, the king, um, end up finding their life. And so C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote in which he says this. He says, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem like our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what it is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Saying when we compare the infinite joy that God has offered us, we are half-hearted creatures. Our, our desires are not too strong for the Lord. He's not like, whoa, whoa, whoa there. You know, you want way too much of what I'm offering. He's saying your desires are fundamentally too weak. That we are way too easily pleased uh, by trinkets and, and treasures in this world. And, and, and what I love what he said there in this quote about we can't even imagine what it's meant by an offer of the holiday sea. And so, again, as a student pastor, I would talk to students all the time who would who would be wrestling with some chronic sin and, and they couldn't get over it. And, and I would try to explain to them not about just stop doing that, you know, do better, but rather let me show you the king. Let you walk with Aslan. You walk with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me show you Jesus. And I'll try to depict just who Jesus was. And it was like they couldn't imagine what it was like to swim in the ocean of God. Because they were in their little puddle. And they thought that this is what life was. So one of our roles as believers is, yes, play in the ocean of God. But then invite those who are playing in the mud 
into the ocean. And so that's how we as followers of the king follow the king. Is there a cost? Yes. It says in Matthew 16 that you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to, put a, you're going to, have to kill your kingdom. But guess what? It's made of sand and it's going to collapse at some point anyways. So just go ahead and do it. Uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, an instrument of death, die to yourself, and then follow me. Because where I'm going is better than where you're at. Uh, But there's a value. You gain your life. You preserve your soul. And there's a high value placed upon your soul. And so I love what Dr. Steve Porter says, one one of your last slides. He says, I think what Jesus is saying, he says, I think what Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, life on your own terms is over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he's worth it. When I trace back my own sins in my life, time and time again, it comes down to I'm trying to build my own kingdom, have my own power, have my own dominion. I'm trying to use my talents, time, and treasures to terminate on myself and not lay them before the feet of the king. So Jonathan Edwards, one of great theologians, once said, that the great sin of mankind is that the love that was designed to radiate out from us has now turned in upon itself. The love that was meant to radiate out from us to love God and love others has terminate now on ourself. And yet the good news is that the king has returned. The king has returned. And now the love that was meant to radiate out has, can radiate out once more. And the king has said to all of us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. That's our king, and he's worth following. He is objectively the best thing ever. So turn in your penny and get Fort Knox and get infinitely more in the person of Christ. So next week, we're going to talk about the insanity of humanity that we, upon seeing the king come, would kill him. That's next week. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I thank you once again just for this right here. That, Father, we were rebels created to be your under rulers, and yet we have not only rebelled, we have traded. We are traitors, and we are sons and daughters of rebels and sons and daughters of traitors. And Father, without your Son, there is no hope. And yet the good news is that the King has returned. And instead of enacting punishment upon all traitors, he has offered us his hand. And he has pulled us into himself. And say, I want you to be in my kingdom for all of eternity, to know me, to walk with me. And yet, Father, the tragedy is we took that hand and nailed it to a cross. 
And so, Father, thank you for the grace of Christ, for the mercy of Christ, that he would cry out as the king of the universe who is rightfully sitting upon his throne. He would cry out from the cross, a human-made instrument of death, to forgive the traitors. So, Lord, thank you for these individuals here tonight. Father, help them every single day to embrace the treasure that we have in Christ. And with joy, give up everything to follow him. Lord, we love you. We ask these things through your spirit and in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.